Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts, I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And and today we're going to be joined by Maggie Bryce and Amy Huff. They're two experts in sex education and they do research in sex research, so we thought they'd be uh, amazing guests to have on to talk uh, about the importance of sex education uh, throughout elementary and high school and, and, and all ages. So thanks for coming on, ladies, uh, and give us a little introduction. What's well, where are you from? What, what are you studying? And what research uh, lab are you in? Um, uh, my name's Maggie, and I'm a master's student currently at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, that's where Amy and I met uh, through the Reproductive and Sexual Health Research Program. So we're on the final stretch of finishing our master's right now. Um, before that, I was at UBC, and I was studying psychology. So that's where I got my bachelor's degree. And during my time at UBC, I was teaching sex education at high schools around Vancouver. And I also worked at the UBC Sexual Health Lab with uh, Dr. Lori Brado. Uh, yeah, cool. Awesome. So, well, welcome. Um, I'm Amy. Uh, my surname is pronounced Hoff in a British accent, but there are eight different ways to pronounce it. So I forgive you for um, the mispronunciation. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I um, am for, well, oh, I'm actually a medical student at the University of Exeter, but I've been taking a year out this year to do this master's. So I'm going back next week um, and I've got one more year left of medicine. Uh, and whilst I was at Exeter, I spent a lot of time working for a charity called Sexpression UK, uh, doing lots of teaching uh, in and around the Southwest and working on their national committee uh, advocating for um, good SRE nationally, really. So SRE is sex oh, yeah, and sex relationships and education. Yeah. That's it's it's a UK thing. Yeah, it's a UK <laughs> thing. <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, it's great. So if you don't mind, why don't you tell us what an SRE is? Well, I think the answer to your question would be, what is SRE not? So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what is it not? <laughs> um, because I think that's the whole point of a really good SRE program is that it's really broad and it encompasses uh, lots of different aspects of sex and relationships and consent and being healthy um, and how to kind of navigate uh, the world that young people grow up in today. So all different things about um, pornography and sexting um, and kind of being online, all of that comes into a broad um, SRE program. Yeah. yeah, everything that and including, you know, knowledge of one's own body and how the body functions and stuff like that, which I think um, kind of at those younger age groups where it's maybe not appropriate yet to talk about sexual intercourse or other kinds of sex, um, but you can mm -hmm. still talk about body in correct terms for genitals and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's actually a question that I had is often you hear parents, you know, using alternative terms, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, uh, for the genitals. And is that something that is part of an educational uh, program? So I think probably, uh, so when I was teaching with Blush Pol programs, which is the sex education program that I worked for, it's called Bold Learning for Understanding Sexual Health. I only worked with older, um, older students and I think that's kind of a, a product of the sex education program in BC um, because it focuses much more in the later years and maybe you'll get like a puberty talk when you're in grade five or grade six and then you get your you know how to put a condom on in grade nine and grade ten and and, and those kind of things and maybe talk more about healthy relationships and stuff but it, I do feel like it's really lacking that earlier years those really really fundamental um, even before the age of five, I would say it's important that kids know the correct terms for their genitals because what you're doing when you're saying wee-wee or like 
hoo-ha or things like that. You're yeah. kind of like escaping talking about it. And I think parents are like scared to like talk about sex or anything related to genitals or anything like that. And it's kind of teaching the kids that that's like something to be ashamed of or don't say that word because like, ooh, it's like gross mm. or not natural or those kind of things. So kind of setting up the, I guess, it's almost like putting the science into like the sex and the body functions earlier on so that kids realize that it's a natural thing. Right. Um, and something that should be, be talked about. Really challenging to try and teach, you know, a, a young male how to put a condom on or a young female and have them sitting there laughing because the teacher's saying penis and <laughs> it's like the first time they've ever heard the word penis in an academic setting. Um, and just having like a room full of giggling fifteen year olds. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that um, we do with sex expression in a lot of our teachers is we have icebreakers at the beginning. And one of my favorite icebreakers is to put up words uh, like penis and vagina on the whiteboard. And then you give a bunch of, you know, I think we play this with actually the youngest I've ever played it with is eight year olds. And you give them all of the pens and you cut, they, they're allowed to come and write up all the words that they know um, for mm. those different words. <laughs> and uh, there is nothing more exciting to a 12 year old, I think, than being allowed to write the word cock on the whiteboard. Um, <laughs> and, I can definitely see that. Yeah, and then so we kind of say that these are all the different words that you can use, but these are the ones we're going to use for um, this session. And I think that a lot of people don't actually um, understand what they're talking about necessarily. Mm -hmm. So actually mm -hmm. having that at the beginning gets everybody on the same page, but then also. Uh, creates a kind of fun environment and gets everybody talking and interested and um, engaged because also if you use really kind of medical scientific terminology I think kids can sometimes disengage with it because it doesn't seem relevant to them so it's important that everybody understands right from the beginning uh, what you're talking about. Absolutely I think that's a really good exercise too because it kind of makes the more medical terms or the terms we want as sex educators or you guys want as sex educators to make more common uh terms that people use like penis and vagina like those are the terms you want them using not like dick or cock or whatever or uh and those are like that's a really good exercise to get people on the same page using the same terminology and feeling comfortable with it as well yeah and you'd be surprised actually how many words go up there that are completely and utterly not correct. So it's a really good kind of myth-busting exercise, especially with the um, younger kids, I find, that you know they've heard different words around and nobody's explained what they've meant because they're not supposed to overhear it or they've heard it on television. And so it goes mm. up on the board and it's just, you know, sometimes it's not even in the human body what they what they up on the board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember doing that once as well. And some of the ones are like, you know, once you once you run out of the, the words for ge generally what you would call like boobs or tits or whatever, and then you get into like the headlamps, the yeah. like <laughs> all these <laughs> nunga nungas, or, nunga -nungas yeah. the knockers. That's the a really knockers. I don't know if you have that in Canada. <laughs> that's so, yeah. Have you ever found in your educational experience with these children an age that it just doesn't work? Like how how young do you think it should start? Sexual education that is. I think personally that it should start, it, there shouldn't really even be a, a start point, you know, so before you go to school, you've got your, your parents um, talking to you. And I think there's a lot of things that you don't realize are part of sex and relationships education that people shy away from massively. As soon as you start calling it sex education, 
people seem to think you're going to start teaching kids how to put condoms on when they're five. And that's not what sex and relationships education is when you're five. When you're five, it's about learning about the different parts of your body and what's okay to touch of somebody else's body and what's not okay and who you go to um, if you think that you know, you're not comfortable with touch in a certain place. And I think that it's very difficult to argue against that being, against that being a good thing. And so one of the things that I did last year was um, teaching SRE and sex education in primary schools, um, in a local primary school. And um, I was surprised because once I explained kind of to the parents what we were going to be covering and how I was going to deliver the sessions, uh, I didn't have a single, I think I had one, one parent didn't want their child to be in the class across the whole year group of 40 or 50 students. So I think that you know, if you, as long as people are informed about what their kids are going to be learning, there's not really an age at which, you know, sex education should or yeah. shouldn't be happening. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember in particular that, like, in when I was when I had sex ed in elementary school and high school, the puberty talk came a couple years too late. We had it in grade six, yep. and like, at that point, you know, puberty's happening at younger and younger in age all the time. And like a whole bunch of the girls had already had their period, not really knowing what it was and all this kind of stuff that it's just adults are very concerned about scarring children and worrying that like something's going to come in too soon, but better too soon than too late, in my opinion, because I think there's a lot of anxiety and fear because of the way that sex and bodies and stuff like that is approached in our culture and like society. There's a huge amount of anxiety and fear that happens around, you know, certain before certain milestones and just getting getting the right education can make a huge difference and just relieving some of that anxiety and also knowing when something isn't normal or natural or or something is going wrong. I know I personally actually this is, I guess this is one of your questions as to like why um, why we started doing the research or work that we're doing. And yeah. part of the reason that I've, I started doing it is because I was so incredibly bad about talking about bodies and <laughs> sex, particularly my bodies and anything sexually related to me um, yeah. for a very long time. And this is coming from a person who was raised in Canada in a left-wing family where both my parents were doctors and I could not talk about it. I took a year-long sex ed course when I was 13 and I still couldn't talk about it. When things go wrong and when you don't talk about these things, there can actually be some really serious complications that ar arise as a result and it's not just necessarily with like puberty or your body but like it can be with sex and STIs and ending up with an unwanted pregnancy if you don't know how to protect yourself you're gonna be pretty screwed when it comes down to like maintaining a healthy physical body I think the yeah. other thing that's important to consider as well is that um, people talk about what's the right age to have sex education and I think people don't necessarily think of the bigger picture that kids are always getting sex education. It's just, are they going to get sex education at school or are they going to get sex education from telly or are they going to get sex education from pornography or from the relationships that they see at home? There's never an age where kids aren't learning about sex, they're not learning about relationships because it's absolutely all around us. Everything you see, has you can't really detract from any form of sex and relationships education because it's going on all the time in our environment and it's just whether you want to give kids the tools to be able to make informed decisions with all of the facts at hand or whether you're going to let them kind of go off 
information that they see on social media or things that they see happening in pornography and think that that's what a healthy relationship is. Right. The latest Beyonce music video may not be the best way to learn about physical body, right? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah. What yeah. I, I think just to kind of go back to what you're saying and maybe extract a little bit from it, I guess what I'm getting out of it is you're suggesting that there really is no age in which sex education must start or does start because it happens from you know day one practically but i think what you're advocating for is especially in really young children you know learning about their own bodies and being able to to talk about that openly and freely and um understanding what their body is and what it does and then being able to build on that yeah i was just gonna say i think it it is like a step-by-step process and I like the term that you actually brought up before Amy was like a a spiral a spiral curriculum yeah a spiral curriculum where you it's not that you're bringing in new topics it's that you're adding to old ones so you start off with what's the name for penis and then you know when you reach like grade four or something you start talking about puberty and then you go okay what happens to the penis during puberty and then um, you reach like grade eight or something and it's like what happens to the penis when you like are preparing for sex and then what happens and then how does the penis look in por- pornography and how does that differ and you kind of like build off that each each kind of time you come back to the, the topic you kind of add more and more information and I think that's the best way to do it because if you make talking about or calling something a penis normal then the next time you talk about a penis, like when you come to putting the condom on, if throughout your entire school career, you've never heard the word penis in the classroom and then suddenly they're showing you how to put a condom on, that's why you get the laughs and that's why everyone's so shocked every time. And that as, as educators, when we walk into the, the classroom for one workshop in a year and we're trying to educate a classroom full of people who have never heard the word penis in a classroom, besides like they might have done it in grade eight science or something like that, but you know, y- I mean, that's where you get the laughs and that's where it becomes hard to be like productive and actually get a message across because there hasn't been that introduction earlier on. Absolutely. It's, it's the reinforcement of common terms like this. Like the spiral is a great way of putting it. I agree. It's, it's, it's a great uh, approach to reinforcing learning that's already occurred and, and building upon that learning. I think that uh, the one point that you guys are making that it never really starts, I don't think it ever, really ever ends either because you can always learn more about your sexuality or other sexuality, other people's sexuality. Uh, but as a child, I mean, think think as a young child and, and how children learn, they model from their parents or, or the closest relationships they have, right? I think the point that Amy made was uh, that you're learning about relationships. You're learning about how other people's bodies are, how your body is, is, is growing, right? So, I mean, you ask things as a curious child that you've, I mean, everybody that has ever talked to a little child always asks a million questions like within 10 seconds, right? So I imagine that they're going to be inquisitive and in asking about why does mom have boobs? Why does dad not have boobs? Why, like, what is that between your legs? Like, what is, what is this? And the way that the parents approach that is sex education at its like origins or where it's starting to kind of develop. Right. So I know there's a big push and I think we'll talk about this a little bit later about parents being the gatekeepers to sex education. And I'm interested in your opinions on that as well, but I think we'll table that and we'll, we'll talk to a little bit about that later. Cause I think that's one of the big parts of this episode is talking about how to actually develop and, and uh, provide this, this education that you guys uh, have, have given and, and would promote. So I'm kind of curious. What is your research focus right now? What are you working on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Maggie and I recently have 
just published a uh, article um, about the use of social media and uh, targeted advertising of natural contraception to natural cycles. Well, but natural natural contraception apps <laughs> using the example of natural cycles um, to kind of young women uh, on their social media, and we basically we're getting these targeted adverts through our own social media because we're in the right age bracket and uh, over a lot of lunches uh, at uni between lectures we just started getting more and more irritated by it because we realized that if we were seeing it probably the kids that we've got lots of experience teaching were seeing it uh, and then you start looking at kind of different influencers that are being paid to promote natural cycles and you see that they're using uh, one of them was a YouTuber and her most popular video was about uh, back to school hairstyles. So it's not really um, the kind of target demographic um, that the app is best designed to work for. So uh, essentially what we did was we looked at the uh, research that Natural Cycles was based on itself um, and uh, evaluated that a bit. And then we looked at the regulatory environment um, around advertising uh, kind of medicinal devices, which is what the app is certified as in the UK. Uh, and it's quite interesting because um, most contraception in the UK requires a prescription. So if you want to go on the contraceptive pill, you have to go to your doctor first or a sexual health clinic and get a prescription for it. So uh, you're not allowed to advertise prescription-only medications in the UK. So it's basically any other contraception apart from really condoms and these apps require like, you know, you can't, you won't see them anywhere on social media. So it's a really unlevel playing wow. field. And then wow. the uh, kind of women that the research was based on were primarily older women in their late 20s and their early 30s. And uh, it's not exactly the peak of fertility at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, that's just so different to the kind of lifestyle that um, the influencers will be leading and also all of their followings will be leading. So that's kind of what we what we've been doing lately and dealing with the fallout from from that which yeah, has exactly. been so, so one, one of the first <laughs> things we did actually was we submitted a complaint to the advertising standards authority yeah. um, because obviously and tv and those kind of advertisements there's a lot more kind of stringent rules around what you can actually do in advertisements and natural cycles um, seem to be kind of bypassing that by advertising through social media and through social media influencers and paid sponsorships um, and we had some concerns about that because I think I've been thinking not just in reference to natural cycles about the impact of influencers and social media kind of celebrities on young people. It's kind of next level advertising in the sense that in an advertisement, they kind of target, you know, certain things that you might like or um, or things that might interest you and, and even just targeting through your Facebook page. But with social media influencers, they have this whole, there's this whole other realm of almost like psychological, emotional manipulation because people feel emotionally attached to these people who are vloggers and showing them their every, like, lives every day. And then you're trying to advertise something to them which is related to their physical health and well being. And it just seems a little bit twisted. It's very, yeah. it's very manipulative. And it, I think there's going to be probably a surge of research in the area in the coming decades or yeah, so definitely. because I think it's it's an area that's really not well regulated and not well understood at all mm -hmm. and I think as like psychologists there's a huge opportunity to kind of like look more into that yeah I think it also yeah. um 
it brings in a kind of wider question about the you know whether social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram are publishers because you know if they were defined if you know if they said that yes they were publishers and they would be responsible for the content that's on their on their websites and that's kind of being brought up a lot with the whole fake news and um, kind of platforming people that probably shouldn't be given a platform so I think that there's a kind of wider issue here not just kind of related to natural contraception but the whole use of social media and how that should be regulated yeah absolutely yeah i think we've we've talked about uh not with regards to sex sexual education or just sexuality in general but we've talked a lot about being critical of uh the media that you're intaking and and that you're uh constantly exposed to it's something that's so important for for young children to kind of have a grasp on of of being critical about whatever they're consuming or wherever they're consuming it from uh but i don't think it's being taught well enough I, i mean there's a there's a third year undergraduate course on uh, being critical about social media oh yeah <laughs> i think that's a little too late <laughs> that's a recent uh it's a recent uh, course that's being offered at ubc but i mean this is something that should be taught way earlier than that now that uh, i mean four-year-olds are on social media <laughs> or, or have phones or, or ipads that have access to the internet right yeah i think we're in a really difficult time because as we have the internet and social media and things change so rapidly with that that it's difficult to keep up with not only the sex education piece which is rapidly changing but i think it's just educated like having the teachers that are educated you know some people have been in the education system and have been doing the same thing for 30 years and you know it it takes first changing the um you know the teachers being educated through their schooling and then changing it like it's really really hard to change it and i just feel like sometimes the internet is changing things too rapidly for regular school systems to keep up with it which mm. is also why i think not only is sex education in the classroom important, but sex education in all areas, like Amy was talking about, like pornography producers need to take a little more responsibility, the like, like just media in general. And I think some of that can be done by regulation. Obviously, you can't really regulate pornography all the time. But I think at least giving students access to online resources that, you know, are um, reliable or um, factually correct, I guess, like f- frequently asked questions on websites or even just like, for example, linking them up with a YouTuber who you know is particularly good at dealing with sex education or sexual health related topics. Like as part of the sex ed curriculum, even though the teachers may not be that educated themselves, they can at least say, here's a list of really good resources that you can browse the internet in your spare time. because. I mean, I know myself and other kids when I was that age, everyone's thinking about it, everyone wants to know about it, and everyone's like, oh no, we have sex ed, but secretly everyone's really excited. Like, we all know that's true, right? So, <laughs> so I just think, like, I don't know, kids are really, really eager to learn about it, and I think just providing them with appropriate resources is one of the best things that you can do as a teacher who may not have the expertise or training in, in whatever specific... Mm-hmm. A few things that you are really... I think you effectively talked about where like the format is really important for teaching these things. And I think as we develop sexual education programs, you have to adapt to what the children are used to or what the youth are used to uh, in consuming information, right? So maybe sitting them down and reading a, a chapter on sex education is not, or, or genitalia might not be the most appropriate way of going about it. Maybe it has to be more visual. Maybe there's videos involved, YouTube videos, like you said, pushing them towards 
uh, good sources, reputable sources online is good because they have access to the internet way before sex education in schools starts. Uh, and that's really important. And then second, uh, the, the thing that we'll talk about as well is the teachers uh, and how you implement these programs is really important as well. So I think those are two things that we can kind of touch on a little more in the questions that we're going forward because, um, yeah, it's not as easy as just saying, this is the new program, now teach it for, <laughs> for uh, elementary school teachers or high school teachers, right? That's that's not how the world works. It's not how people or teachers work. They, they have material that they're used to, they're comfortable with, and then when you have you're forcing new uh, new concepts or new uh, curriculum on them. It's, it doesn't go as smoothly as everybody might think. Well, Drake, you and I know that the research in our areas changes seemingly overnight sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, every episode we talk about some sort of myth or misconception that emerges out of work that's being done in certain people's research fields. And I think it's really important to be able to say and, and especially for something so important like sexual health and, and physical health, like this is an aspect of physical health, psychological health, being able to say, hey, what you learned to teach 30, 40 years ago is not what we're teaching now. Mm-hmm. And part of your job as an educator is to learn and adapt and then be <laughs> able to give that information accurately. Right. And yeah. so um, but yeah, cascading it down is so challenging. So, I mean, let's, there's a couple questions that I wanted to kind of, the reason why I was so excited to have this episode on and have you guys on was, uh, mainly spurred by, I'm from Ontario and there's a, there's a big, uh, overhaul of the sex edge programs, uh, and they didn't like the way that they were set up. And, and, and I find that, uh, Amy and, and Maggie, the, the SREs or the sex education, uh, in non-North American areas seem to be addressing what our program that they're, r- r- repealing was actually doing I, f- I felt like you guys talk about very similar things at similar stages uh throughout uh i mean grade ones to grade eight and then onwards from high school uh but now they're going back to a 1998 model until they can repeal it or, or they can they can change it uh and that means that the internet didn't exist <laughs> at that point cell phones weren't really prevalent or the, the internet just start, dial up was in in play in 1998 yeah but it wasn't the same internet that we're used to now. And and these are there's a ton of issues. I mean, 1998 was not as inclusive as 2018 is, I, I imagine now. I, I was five, so I can't really give a good recall of that. But I mean, there's a lot of things that have improved within our, our society and our culture that, that really are dictated in, in the way that we teach sex education. Things like sexting, things like online use, being safe online, uh, gender identity, all these other topics that really weren't addressed adequately in 1990. Yeah, consent, a huge, huge thing that really is not discussed in, I mean, it's still just being discussed now more more openly, but in the, in the sex edu- sexual education programs, now they're actually uh, talking about sexual consent. Um, so this is what spurred the idea to have you guys out and kind of get you guys to talk more and, and give people ideas of what sh- you guys think should be done or what should be taught and I mean, your, your experience with it. So... Um, yeah, what's the question here? The, the, whoa, <laughs> long-winded uh, intro there. But what do you, this is this is a very broad question, but I think we'll get into specifics after that. What do you guys think should be taught in a sexual education program? What are the types of things that should be? Uh, and I think we can also talk about what at what stages. So what where do you think uh, topics should be introduced? When when I first heard about the Ontario curriculum, when it first kind of like came into play, 
I was so excited and I, I just thought, can we copy and paste this in, in BC? Because right now BC, there's not really one curriculum. They kind of have, oh, you have to cover sex ed and you have to kind of cover these general topics related to like, don't get pregnant, don't like mm -hmm. get an STI. And you can kind of around that talk about some healthy relationship stuff and some consent. And um, but basically what happens in BC is they have these kind of key points that you should hit in certain grades. But generally what happens is there's a program that comes into the school and does, you know, a one hour workshop and tries to hit all the, the topics. And that's fine and our program like we try to do like as as well as we can but there's so many different ones in bc i was looking at a list of them on the government on the bc government website of all these different programs and some of them look great you know there's like you know a gender stereotype sort of um program called community in vancouver which talks about you know gender as a spectrum and diversities and things like that and that's super great. And then there's, but there's so many different ones that it would be really hard to know where to even start if you're somebody looking for uh, a program to come into your school because you want the sex ed to be done well. And it's also a one-off thing. So it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not like it in the Ontario one, which if you read through it, does look like that kind of spiral curriculum where it starts at a really young age. I believe it starts in um, age six or grade one. Yeah. And then, and it's kind of talking about just kind of as we were saying before, and. It, I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, so they they do talk a lot. I, I had the okay, you had it up. Yeah, I have it. Yeah, so I mean, in grade one, so at every if if everybody, we'll put a link as well. So I mean, I think a, a large part of uh, the discourse that's going on in Ontario, and, and I mean, I imagine in other areas too, is that. Uh, not a lot of people actually understand what's being taught in the programs. They're just uncomfortable with the idea of of someone else teaching sexual education. And so, I mean, for for an example, just kind of give people an idea of what the format is. I mean, in grade one, the idea, this is out of the 2015 sexual education program out of Ontario. Uh, you've got it up as well. So, so they don't really develop sex ed too much in grade one and two. It's more or less the bare bones. What's your body like? Yeah. Uh, How do you, general upkeep. <laughs> Yeah, general yeah. upkeep. Like that's what that's what's going on in their sex lives right now is just worrying about brushing their teeth, keeping themselves clean. They're should <laughs> they're grade two. Oh yeah, eighty percent yeah. of the way there. Grade three, they talk more about healthy relationships, physical and emotional development, and then they talk about visible and invisible differences or respect of others, which is really important. I think um, as a child, this in grade three, I mean, they're just more or less trying to interact with others and and kind of not be assholes to each other. <laughs> so I think that approach is really like it's a it's a smart approach and then after grade three when you start grade four would be what age uh nine nine nine, nine years old so at nine years old they start talking about puberty which maggie you already talked about how your experience of uh sexual education was way too late came way too late past the point of uh most children already being through puberty when they start talking about puberty and they're like oh so that's what's been going on the last two years of my life uh, getting to talk about that earlier on is really important. And so, I mean, th that's just like the first four years of the sexual education program there. And, and they, they expand things to talk later on about, I mean, uh, sexual, like respecting other sexuality, uh, gender identity, um, consent, 
sexting was a big thing that was very contentious in that but sexting is something that is now really prevalent and and a lot of children are doing this regardless of whether or not parents think they are i think maggie has some yeah well i can say what i can say what i can say i know i can say is that the research that i'm working on for my thesis sexting is proving to be a very important risk factor Mm -hmm. for um early sexual debut right and that's something that in 1998 obviously was not in the curriculum. <laughs> so, I mean, these are things that are really important uh, now, especially because of the, the prevalence of technology in, in everyday life for, for kids, especially. Social media technology, as, as we've discussed in previous episodes, is essentially accelerating our development as human beings. Mm-hmm. We're being exposed to more things at younger ages. And sexual health and sexual development is one of those things. Yeah. And so strategies that were or could have been efficient, you know, 20 years ago are no longer mm. and that's just the nature of the world it's just an evolving world yep. life's getting busier faster people are getting more information at younger ages yep and that's not necessarily a bad thing if it's done right if, if, it's if done there's right. education that's if there's education in place to support yeah, yeah absolutely um yeah let's do it oh i was just gonna i was just gonna Sorry. add to the um the yeah. UK, the uk is actually in a kind of similar situation um i think at the moment so our sex education program hasn't been or guidance hasn't been updated since 2000. Um, okay. And we've currently in a situation where uh, they had a lot of stakeholder input. Um, and we've just started uh, with a new guidance that's out of consultation at the moment. And it's a kind of similar thing um, in that now it's much more comprehensive. Um, it's kind of what we've all been calling for, really. So hopefully it will, it will get through. But I think that the, the challenge of the kind of changing les- legislation and guidance is really that it's not that schools don't want to teach um, the things that they know that are important to their kids at that time. It's that if it's not in the curriculum, it's very difficult for them to actually make time to do it. So I've had lots of conversations with schools where they will say, look, we really want you to do a session on sexting. It's really prevalent at the moment and we're having lots of problems with it. Um, but we're we don't know if we're going to have time to fit it in when we need you to come in and talk about how to put a condom on because that's what's in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I think that it's it's difficult to kind of say what should and shouldn't be in it. I actually think that the guidance should have some scope for saying that, you know, some recognition of the fact that uh, the environment is changing so quickly, particularly the environment of sex and relationships and the impact of all the different social media apps. You know, Snapchat wasn't a thing a few years ago and now it's mm-hmm. a massive problem for sexting and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I think there should be some scope for the changing environment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in your experience, how does sex education differ from place to place? Like I know we've been talking about BC a little bit and then Ontario and now the UK. But, I mean, nobody's using the same set of notes, so it's got to be different, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes is a short answer to that question. <laughs> is, there any, is there anywhere doing it really well that you know of? There was one school I worked with in the Southwest that was really brilliant. Um, and they, they were an all-girls school, and they, they were really, really on it. They had us coming in all the time. They... Um, so the whole so Sexpression UK, the charity that I that I volunteered for for a long time, which is kind of um, why I'm interested in um, sex and reproductive health, is 
uh, it kind of, it's not got anything really to do with the government, so it's not mandated in any form. And so school, it's cause the onus is on schools for us to, to invite us in. And that's basically, that's basically how it works. So it's same the, I think it's the same yeah, with Maggie. Um, so it's really interesting to talk to different schools and see how much scope they've got for bringing us in, how often they want us to come in and what they want us to cover. And some schools will be very specific about um, what we should be covering and what we shouldn't be covering. And um, I think that it's, there are some schools that do it really well. And I think most schools have got the intention that they want to give, um, that they do want to give their kids a holistic, comprehensive sex education. Because at the end of the day, when you're 15, one of the most important things to you at that time is probably the relationships that you've got going on. If that's with your friends or, you know, in a romantic sense or a sexual sense, or you're worried about your gender identity or your sexual identity, you know, all of those things are so important at that age because it's developing so fast and your, you know, hormones are going on all over the place. So it is really important for, um, young people to be really informed about what's going on and able to cope with all of those different changes so then they can actually excel in other aspects of their school and their personal life and their development themselves so i think by and large schools have got have got good intentions it's just how how much that they can fulfill that and then when you go in the differences in the classes oh are shocking like sometimes i've oh sometimes God. i've taught in assemblies of like 80 kids mm. and sometimes schools will be able to set aside you know small groups of of 10 and you know it's just it's just what people and like. it's not only that it's within one classroom you can have a group of 10 yeah. people but the variety of like knowledge and or maturity yeah. is just like it's pretty crazy and i think it, a lot of times it can vary by school like you were saying yeah. um but yeah i guess some examples for me are so one classroom i had a student who asked questions along the way that it was very, very clear that he knew very, very little about sex, even like the purpose of sex. Um, and we were talking about STIs and how you get an STI. And I was explaining the name or the fluids that surround, you know, the sperm and the egg. And we were talking about seminal fluid. And then I was asking, does anyone know like the fluid that surrounds the egg, what that's called or like what's basically the vaginal fluid was the answer that I was looking for. And this kid raised his hand and very seriously said yolk. And so it's things like that where like everyone else in the class is laughing, but you have this kid who I think he's probably recently emigrated to Canada within the past like five years or so and was very clearly like looked like he was dressed by his mom, but he was, you know, in grade nine and everyone else in the class the other half of the class is sitting there, you know, oh, I know this already. Oh, like I've been there, done that kind of thing. And then you, so who do you cater to in that situation? Right. It can be really difficult, especially when not everyone has been taught the same things over like a course of a few years. And then you have the other side of the spectrum where you have the kid, you know, from, um, I had one school in particular that was very, very rowdy and it was very difficult to get through the program. So what we do in our workshops is we have everyone set up the chairs in kind of like a horseshoe shape so that everyone's kind of like facing each other and it's a bit more of like a discussion format shall we say um and the students walked in and they are like instantly they knew they were having sex ed so they were just like bouncing off the walls and this one kid goes hi look my name's jeremy and i smoke smoke pubes or whatever they thought like they were acting like they were coming into like alcoholics anonymous and then the other like at the end of it they're like 
should you put bleach on the condom? And like just asking the most ridiculous questions. Right. And, and the way that you have to handle those situations, because what you realize is those are the kids who you probably need to be reaching the most right now. Mm -hmm. um, right. And so my technique that I use, and it never failed me, was to answer every single question as though it was yeah. a dead serious question. He asked me, should you put con bleach on the condom? And I said, actually, you know, you probably shouldn't do that because bleach tends to break down um, whatever it touches. Um, so you could actually, it could, you could end up with holes in your condom and then, you know, that defeats the whole point of wearing a condom in the first place. Also, bleach is a pretty big irritant. It would probably hurt your penis and the vagina. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. And by the end of that class, that same kid came up to me at the end, waited for everyone else to leave and said, um... So why shouldn't you flush a condom down the toilet? Because I had it, it was really rushed at the end, and I was trying to explain, and then and then I was like, oh well, like you know, condoms they don't break down in the toilet. It's not very environmentally friendly, and also it could clog your toilet, and it would be like rather awkward conversation to have with your plumber, and or your parents. And then he was like, oh my gosh, because like, I've flushed a lot of condoms down the toilet, and I was like, yeah. it's okay, just like he's running home to fish them out of the toilet bowl. But yeah, it's like I mean, you oh, have no. those students who are like joking around and like and stuff like that but when it comes down to it they want to know just as much as anyone else and they're just you know embarrassed and they're the class clown and they want to i i think that a lot of it is about creating a really safe environment um and you know often the kids that are the rowdiest are the kids that maybe need um a bit more attention than than the others in, in some cases and the other thing that's really important as well that we do all the time in sex expression is that we have these ground rules that you're not allowed to you know share personal stories because that can you know lead to some some difficult situations and quite often uh if you've got a particularly rowdy class people will call out certain people for doing things and say oh miss you can talk to her about that cause she shagged loads of blokes mm -hmm. and that kind of right. you know it's it's very difficult to um negotiate that in a way that um is safe for everybody and then sometimes you do end up getting disclosures well, you know we've had a few after teaching kind of consent classes a few disclosures of non-consensual sexual acts after the session so having really good child protection um yeah resources and um guidelines about what to do in that scenario and who to contact is a really important part of sex education i think people kind of think it's a really fun thing which is you know 90 percent of yeah. the time and it's really rewarding and fulfilling but you do have to remember that you're doing it for a reason and sometimes there are kids that are in danger and like part of your role as an educator is to identify them and help them exactly. in that situation absolutely those are really good points like i I think the the fact, I, just the one point about the immature student being the one that might need it the most is really, I mean, it's eye-opening to me because it's it's it makes so much sense when you say it <laughs> as sex educators, but I don't think most teachers would pick up on that. I think they, would, they wouldn't treat it that way. Exactly, and they would see it as, oh, you're disrupting the class, like Get everyone else class. is here to learn and they might kick them out of the class. And yeah. it's like, no, that's your person you want in the class, right? And mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so important is by by not a, like somebody makes a joke you don't have to necessarily shut them down it is you know an awkward uncomfortable conversation to have for a lot of students and so to let them have their laugh and then continuously answer their joking questions as though they're real questions and then those joking questions start to turn into real questions mm -hmm. because Absolutely. people realize no she's really going to answer any question that i have <laughs> also you can never be sure I think yeah, you can never exactly, be sure that exactly. a joke question isn't a real question. Yeah. So we have a question box at the end of um, our sessions where the um, kids write down questions on a slip of paper and you answer them. So it's kind of a, anonymous. Um, and we always make sure to answer 
every single question unless you know often you get ones especially with the older kids they're like oh can i have your number and that i don't answer honestly but <laughs> you know all, all the other ones i try to because you never know if a question mm -hmm. isn't isn't a real one sometimes even if it seems stupid to you or not absolutely i think one of the important questions i wanted to touch on was what's the role of the parent in in sex education in in your opinion so how, how much control or how much do you think the parent should play a role in sex education I think parents, uh, I know I've said this a lot, but parents are already providing sex and relationships education whether they intend to or not. Um, and I think that it's actually quite important that parents reflect on that sometimes. And I've had um, quite young kids come and ask, I had one young kid ask me why uh, she had seven dads when her friends only had one um, and that kind of thing. So I think that, you know, it's, it, it's difficult to um, avoid providing um, sex and relationships education as a parent and I think that it really depends with I don't think there's any right or wrong way to do it or how much one parent should do over another and um, I think that you have to think about what's right for your child and what you feel comfortable doing you know we don't want I think you know if you're if you're super conservative and you don't feel comfortable talking about it then there are loads of really great books that you can give to your kids mm -hmm that provide really good education and then you can say you know if you've got questions you can come talk to me about it and other really liberal parents might be much more comfortable talking about it so i think it really depends on your relationship with with your with your children as to what right. what you think right. is, yeah. is appropriate. and i think the thing that worries me the most i think when people start saying oh that should be left up to the parents or parents should be teaching that to their kids and I think parents should get to decide what their parents, what their kids know and what they don't know. The thing that really worries me about that is those kids that don't really have those kinds of parents who are even going to entertain the idea. Mm -hmm. Those kids who really don't have a supportive adult in their life. Like you're missing out on that most vulnerable population. Those are the people. If you could just scrape all those, if you could take all the people who are well educated by their parents and take them out of the classroom, that's fine. They'll probably survive if their parents are good enough at explaining certain things but for those kids who really don't have an, an easy upbringing mm -hmm. who don't yeah. have a supportive family or any anything like that to fall back on like that is where i think people are not you know they're they're saying well my kid's fine because i already talk about that and i don't want you talking about that with my kid yeah. it's like okay yeah. then your kid's fine mm -hmm. what about all the others why are you going to ruin this entire you know sex education curriculum because your kid's going to be fine because you'd already talked about all that stuff with your kid or that's a wonderful insight that's a really nice insight that i don't think a lot of parents specifically think about i mean it's a common it's a common complaint with sex education programs every parent has an opinion on it and I think that's a really good point for, for those that don't have those really good supportive uh, adult figures or, or caregivers. Uh, that's Those are the ones that are really going to need it the most. And I think that's really a good plug for sex education in the school systems. Yeah, there's quite a lot of discussion in the UK um, media at the moment about, so at the moment, parents can withdraw their um, kid from sex education if they want to, and they've got that right. And there's a lot of discussion about um, whether we should keep that aspect, you know, whether parents should should retain that right, and at what stage should um, um, ch young people become competent to say, actually, no, this is my decision, and I want to take part in sex education. So that would mm. be an interesting thing to watch out for. I, I every time I hear that argument, and it's an it's an argument that's being made in Canada as well, is that parents should be able to pull them out of sex and globally education. and globally, yeah, is that uh, should parents be able to pull them out of math and and geometry, like and, and geology or or history or whatever, just at whim? Uh, like to me, it's it's almost more important to be in sex education programs or or get that sex education versus I don't know 
taking her out. I don't ever use my knowledge about rocks from geography, that's for sure. Everyone <laughs> <laughs> should have pulled me out of that class. What a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah, no, so I, I, I completely agree. I almost think it's like, it's like the foundation. Like, how do you navigate your body? And how do you navigate your relationships with other people? Like, you know, like, it's such a basic level, like, food, water, shelter, kind of like, go to the bathroom, yeah. brush your teeth. This field is filled with misconceptions and myths. Uh, if you guys have a, a couple that you'd like to talk about quickly, I mean, we can go for days on them. So what are a couple of myths or misconceptions within sex education? Yeah, so I think that we've probably covered it a bit, but um, I think uh, when you tell young people about sex, they all start having it, um, is one of the biggest uh, myths that I come across. Um, and the scientific answer is that that is incorrect. When you tell young people about sex, they actually have it later. <laughs> um, so uh, there was data um, from a big um, national attitude to sexual and lifestyle um, survey that was run in the UK that found that young people report lessons at school as their main source of information about sex are less likely to have had unsafe sex in the past year um, than people that report receiving most of their information about sex from other sources. Um, and those that learn about sex mainly through school lessons also tend to report being older the first time that they have sex and are less likely to report of having an STI diagnosis. And interestingly, women who report receiving most of their information about sex from school um, are more likely to report being sexually competent. So that's um, the kind of sexual competence is a measure that's used in sex research where um, about whether the partners were equally willing, whether reliable contraception is used, the decision to have sex wasn't due to peer pressure, drunkenness or drugs, and sex occurs at the perceived right time for that person. So all of those things are kind of put into a metric and then that's your, your sexual competence. So if you get your lessons from school, you're more likely to be sexually competent when you first have sex, which I actually think is the most important aspect. It's huge, yeah, mm -hmm. that's absolutely massive. That's where I guess my um, research I'm looking into early sexual debut is really important because it's not necessarily the fact that they're having sex earlier, it's those other things that generally go along with that, and that's things like, you know, substance use, and there's a whole bunch of literature on, you know, you know, non-consensual sex or substance use or those kind of things that actually tend to go along with the early sexual debut. It's not that the fact that they're like 14 in itself. Yeah. If they're having safe sex at 14, it's different than having risky sex or doing risky behaviors. People at 14 are at a huge, like wide range of different like levels of maturity, mm -hmm. physically, mentally, and emotionally. <laughs> so, I mean, you can be a totally sexually comp competent 14 year old and a totally sexually incompetent 30 year old. Absolutely. Like there's Absolutely. no, the age is not the key factor. Yeah. That's, that's a really cool uh finding and, and cool myth that i think is huge uh when it comes to sex education especially with like the idea that absence programs are the best approach uh it makes my head spin but uh, yeah, they actually don't work they actively they don't work and this is they'll come to our fun fact isn't it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah oh, is no i think it's a bit earlier okay. Okay. no yeah it actually results in um more um unwanted pregnancies, pregnancies absence only mm -hmm. yeah so it's backed up by research that abstinence programs and not talking about sex are actually not beneficial. Surprise, surprise. So yeah, so what? Uh, I mean, there's a million fun facts that you can talk about, statistics that are interesting in this area. Do you want to just like list off a couple before we before we wrap up? Like, what are some interesting findings other than the ones that you just told us that are pretty crazy? Um, so my fun fact for you all is the gender disparity in viewing pornography. So. Um, and you know who uses that as information about sex. So the um, survey I mentioned earlier that's run in the UK found that a quarter of men cited 
porn as a source of information about, about sex compared to only 2% of women. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> yeah. That's a staggering statistic. Yeah. On to the next statistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll just that's, leave that one that, there. That's very sad. That's, I mean, that's also, we talked at length about that, but that's, that's not optimal, obviously, when they're, when they're pulling from uh, porn, which is often conflated and uh, fake in some, some senses like surgery and, uh, just the way it's shot. Enhancements. Yeah. Enhancements. It actually, it actually affects your sexual behavior as well. So there's yeah. a lot of... And the sexual scripts, right? Like how yeah, exactly. sexual scripts play out and how you're supposed to engage in sexual behaviors. Like, sadly, these statistics are not positive in a sense. Like they're, they're kind of um, what we would expect, I guess, at, at the current situation that we're in where sexual education is really important, but we're still trying to push the fact that it's important, right? I mean, it's not uh, globally appreciated as something that is a priority. Uh, hopefully it changes. If you want a positive sex fact, more people have sex in the summer than any other season. So <laughs> there we go. That's thanks for ending on a positive note, man. Yep. <laughs> Let's call it an episode. <laughs> I, so that's great. I mean, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking to this, talking about this important topic. Um, I think a lot of people have, can take away a lot of really interesting things. Uh, just general viewers, parents, students, young, young adults, youth, sex educators everybody could take something from this poly from this episode you guys uh, have shed a lot of light on something that most people don't really talk about or, or are educated on so it's great yeah just before we sign off is there any way that we can reach you is there a way that our audience can get in touch We've got Twitter now, don't we? We do Amy? have Twitter. We have academic Twitters. We do. <laughs> you can follow us on our academic Twitters. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys want to list them off? What's your What's your Twitter handles? We'll also post them on our website. Mine is at Maggie Bryce. I got my full name because way back in the day, I thought one day I might need Twitter and I want to have my full name when I didn't have it. So I got Twitter and then never used it for like seven years. <laughs> I am not so Phenomenal. lucky. Um, I am at <laughs> at Amy <laughs> underscore Hoff one. My... okay all right at least you're number one <laughs> yeah that's awesome so we'll we'll also we we will link to your your uh your twitter handles whenever we post the episode and uh yeah thanks again amy and and maggie for coming on and talking to us about how sex education should look like what your experiences are teaching and and really some really insightful things about like where sex cool. education needs to go and what, what we need to do to kind of improve it um it's really it's really important now, especially with all the things that are going on and across the world for sex education. It's so important. And, uh, and we really appreciate you guys to come out and talk about that. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more on uh, iTunes and Google Play. You can also find this and other episodes on brainbuzzpodcast.com, as well as information about our guests and links to uh, various research things that we've discussed throughout the course of this and other episodes. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please, please, please uh, give us a like, give us a star or two on uh, wherever you found it hopefully more than two stars <laughs> hopefully more than two stars but hey <laughs> we're realistic here um uh you can also uh interact with us we're on uh instagram uh we're on twitter we have an email address that you can get off our website you can contact us through our website as well um brainbuzzpodcast.com brainbuzzpodcast.com and we're also on facebook and we're on facebook no. i almost forgot about facebook yeah we're on facebook so you can check us out there we'll make sure that we include links and give you little updates about uh this and other episodes as we prepare them and uh get them ready for release and launch and uh we'll give you little teasers and snippets about our upcoming episodes as well uh until our next episode take care and cheers